So, Father, I, you know, we don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it or, yeah. But you know, Lord, you know it all, and your Holy Spirit is praying within us with groans too deep to utter. You know our heart, you know how much we want to help one another and to, and to be the human voice. Um, so, Lord, we just ask you to um, teach us how to be a support for one another, how to lift one another up before your throne of grace, how to uh, remember, Lord, to pray and and. And Father, we trust you that you will, you will answer the prayers of our hearts and not necessarily our feeble attempts with our words. So um, I thank you, Lord, for the privilege it's been over this holiday to pray for all these people. I thank you for the way that you've answered. I, I thank you for the way that you have uh, spoken to me through it and I'm sure to people who have been praying too. And I ask, Lord, that you would continue in that and help us to grow as we pray, to grow closer to you and closer to one another. Thank you for this family, Lord, this family of desiring truth. Thank you. Thank you for what you are doing and what you have done through it. And thank you for what you will teach us now as we go into the last half of Luke's Gospel. Because we want, beyond anything else, Lord, we want to be close to you, to get closer, to know you, to, to be able to share the reality of who you are and what you have done to everyone that we know and even those we don't know yet. So we thank you, Lord, that you will do that. We thank you so much that you have plans for us, that you have a purpose for our lives and that part of that purpose is that we love one another. And so I thank you, Lord, and uh, we praise you and give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So um, last time, I think, in the last session, I said that... uh, one of the things in the homework was to make segments of Luke's gospel, to break it up into sections. And I think I said, I'm not sure, but I think I said that we were in the um, third section, which finished at chapter 16. That was a mistake. If I said that, that was a mistake. It doesn't finish until chapter 18. Um, and uh, so we are still in the middle of um, that third sec- segment. And I thought just by way of review from the first half of Luke's Gospel, you could tell me what you think the segments are, the first two segments, how they're broken up. And also, in remembering the segments, giving me some idea of or think, trying to explain to me what you feel that you've learned from the Lord in these chapters, the first 12 chapters doesn't have to be long, it just has to be, yeah. So what's the first segment of uh, Luke's Gospel, do you think? The background to his birth. Yeah. And then his baptism and Yeah, so the first one began in chapter one, obviously, and finished in chapter three. Uh, at the end of chapter 3. So uh, it's, it's the background to his birth, it's telling us about his birth, and uh, if you had to give it a title, though, if you had to give it some way of uh, thinking about um, who he is and what he came to do, what would you say uh, you could, you know, for the Gospel itself, what does Paul, uh, Luke do in, that, in the first three chapters? Yeah, the coming, 
his company as, as a child. I think that you probably won't get the word I've got, so I'm going to give it to you anyway, because <laughs> um, it's probably a bit random. But I felt like those first three chapters are the preparation for what Luke's going to tell us about Jesus. So it's his birth, his, 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 um, the fact that Messiah came, how he came, the uh, the, the account of Elizabeth and Zechariah, the, the, all the preparation for the birth of Jesus. And um, it seemed to me that that's what he was doing. He was, Luke was, A, telling us about the preparation of God for the birth of Jesus and also preparing us for what we're going to go on to, um, to read about. Um, you can have a different title. It's just a way of remembering what those first three chapters are about. Um, what about the next section? So it's from chapter 4 to chapter 8. What, what would you say happens in that? What does Luke do in those chapters? Jesus' preparation. Uh-huh. Yeah, in the beginning, in chapter 4, he's, in, he's led into the wilderness, definitely, to be tempted. Um, what, what does Jesus primarily do? What does Luke record primarily in those chapters, four, four to eight? Uh, yes, yeah, he does. But remember, Luke's whole aim is to tell this man, Theophilus, who is a, a lover of God, and, and through him, or through this letter to tell everyone else who comes after, who Jesus is. So who is Jesus according to Luke? What's the title of this course? Son of Man. Man. According to Luke, Jesus is the Son of Man. That's how he presents him. So, uh, but Luke knows and and, and writes from the beginning that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God in a way that we cannot understand. It's a mystery. So he's now, he's, he's told us about the preparation of the birth of the Son of Man, who is also 100% God. And now in chapter 4 through 8, he's going to show how Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man and the Son of God. Do you see what I mean? So in those chapters, if you were looking for Jesus, how Luke presents the identification of Jesus, what would you find? What happens in those five, four, five, six, seven, and eight? Yeah. His power to heal. His power to heal, the miracles and the signs. That's part of the way that Luke identifies Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of Man and the Son of God. So here's the first three chapters. This was the preparation, the preparation of God for the bringing of Messiah, the preparation of... um, of his gospel to show who Jesus is. Then from chapter 4 to chapter 8, he's talking about how Jesus identified himself. Why was it important for the signs and the wonders and the miracles to happen? To fulfill prophecy, exactly. That that's what the Old Testament talked about. That he would open blind eyes. That the lame would walk. That that sick people would be brought back to healing. That demons would be uh, sent away. That cast out. So all of that is the fulfilment of prophecy. And Luke uses all of his signs and miracles to identify this Jesus, this Messiah. Um, And so then as he goes on... um, in uh, chapter uh, 9 through 18, where we are, what's, 
primarily, what's Luke including in these chapters? Yeah, sort of, but what else? Parables. Parables. What's he doing with the parables? He's teaching. So think about this, think about this. The, here is Jesus, right? The first section, the first three chapters, covers a time span of 30 years. This was the preparation of Jesus. This is the time when they go to the temple and his parents leave and they don't know that he's not with them. This is the time when uh, Jesus is growing in stature with God and man. This is the time when he's being, he's being prepared for what he's going to do humanly speaking, and we're being prepared through those first three chapters to see this Jesus. Then Luke goes straight into the signs and the wonders, the fulfillment of the prophecy that when Messiah came, this is what he would bring with him. He'd bring healing. He'd bring casting out demons. He'd bring power with him, the power to do things immediately. And that's what Luke tells us there. But those miracles all take place in about a year and a half. It's so strange. When you plot it with the other Gospels, you just can't get it into your head. For only about a year and a half, he's actually doing the miracles. Well, it's not that he stops, it's that he goes away more and more with his own disciples and spends more and more time with his disciples who he's training to go on from there. And so this instruction and teaching, whilst it is for the, uh, the crowds and anyone who's listening, he's starting to narrow in with his disciples. And this parables and teaching lasts about six months. It's quite incredible. No. Exactly. And then the last section of Luke's gospel from chapter 19 to chapter 24 is all about what? His death and his resurrection. It's about uh, the great sacrifice of the Son of Man and the great resurrection of him as the God man. It's quite amazing. And that section... Sections 19 to 24 is about eight and a half days. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, go ahead, Alan. Do you think that confidence grows in his disciples that he says at the end of 18, pray and never give up from me. Say that. Wait a minute, Alan. Let me get there. Chapter 18. Oh, to show that at all times they should pray and not lose heart. I think so. I'm not sure that... Um, I think Jesus knew his disciples inside and out, just as he knows you and I inside and out. And he knew the heart of man. That's what John's Gospel says, that Jesus knew what was in man's heart. So I think he knew that these disciples would all leave him, which is what they did. They would all fall asleep and not pray with him. They would all run away afraid. So I don't think that you get this kind of idea of the confidence of Jesus in his disciples. I think what Luke is describing is Jesus' um, battle to be the perfect son of man. And he did have to fight because Luke records in, at the end in chapter 22, I think, he, he says the, the, um, when Jesus is in Gethsemane and he prays, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Because he does not want to die. 
And it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate time. He's had all of the temptation. Luke began with it, didn't he, in chapter 4? All the temptation to not be the perfect person, to not be the one who would do everything that his father wanted. And, and then right at the end, he's still fighting that battle to, to, to be, to do only what his father wants him to do. Yes, definitely. Of definitely. And he's done that. Why? Why has he done that? To show us that he understands, but also, yeah, also, because that it's that no, that he will make it possible in you. See, I think he wasn't confident in his disciples, but he was confident that what he did and when he was resurrected when he came by the Holy Spirit into you and to me, we would then be enabled by him to do what he had done, to, be, to live for the Father's will. Not perfectly, because we're still fighting this battle, but, but um, we're still in human flesh, but that, but that he would enable us to do what we were called to do, actually, and that is to live for the will of God. Um, yeah. But I think... I think he didn't have confidence, but I think he loved them, Alan. Yeah. Really loved them. And so the confidence didn't matter, really. The fact that they were going to fail him, it didn't matter. The fact that we fail him doesn't matter to God. It doesn't change his plan for us, and it doesn't change his will for us or his love for us, because he just... I mean, that's really hard, isn't it? I've been fighting that this Christmas. I've been show I think God has shown me that. Even though I thought I totally believed and knew that God loved me, there's still that part of me that thinks, how can he? And so, and that's unbelief. That's unbelief because all the way through the scriptures is God's absolute I have called you by name, you are mine. And that understanding that he knows everything. So, and yet he loves. So, uh, yeah, that's a long way to say. Now, I'm not quite sure I agree with the confidence, but, um, but that he did love them. So, um, so Luke's gospel then is, um, his, the primary uh, section is um, the instruction and the... Um, and the end, the sacrifice and the great miracle of the resurrection. That's the main bulk of this gospel. Um, the, the miracles, they're there from chapter 4, as I say, to chapter 8. But they're really just to identify that Jesus is God because they were waiting for Messiah. And then, from then on, he's now into that section. We're into that section where he's teaching what it means to walk with God, what it means to to live by God's will. And a lot of the parables involve the same thing. So what primarily, in the parables, what does he primarily talk about? Yeah, it talks about the kingdom of God. Yeah. A lot of the parables involve money. They involve wealth. They involve physical, human stuff. And, and, and in all of the parables, 
he's teaching something. We talked about it last time. I know it was before Christmas, but we talked about this last time. All of the parables talk about, all of his teaching talk about the tension there is as a believer, as someone who wants to live for God, in living in this world with your eye on heaven. I think we said last time, Peter says, doesn't he, that our citizenship is not is in heaven, not here. And all of the parables, that's where he got it from. He got it from Jesus, that you have to live here. And here is very distracting. So you have to make sure that you train yourself to keep your eyes on where you belong and where you're headed. Otherwise, everything is conspiring to take you away from that. And the more you allow yourself to be taken away, the less you are able even to understand the will of God, but certainly to want to live for God's will. Yeah. Do you think it helps? I, I, I just walk through Zion's Testament, which I don't do very often. And I was, I was chatting to God, and I was saying, look at all this stuff, it's all this stuff in the shops, and we don't need it. And I just thought, do you think it helps that we live in the country, not in a city? Because I think if I lived, say, in London, I'd be going to all the interior shops every day. I wouldn't be in my Bible. So do you think it helps that we, we're not that much in it as you would be if you were living outside? I think it helps you. It doesn't <laughs> help me to live in the country. <laughs> I'd much rather live in London. <laughs> and what's the matter with a good department store? That's what I want to know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think that God knows you, Juliet. Doesn't he? And so he draws you along that route to, to be able to say to him today, look at all this stuff. I'm so happy that I can, can spend some time in your word, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. so uh, people are drawn by different things, aren't they? So um, anyway, so all the stories and all the parables uh, have to do with living here with our focus on, on heaven. And, um, and the thing is, that's difficult. <laughs> That's difficult. It's really, really difficult because we get bogged down. And, and oh, part of Christmas decorations. Um, we get bogged down, not necessarily with bad things or with sin. We get bogged down with good things. We get bogged down with family. We get bogged down with uh, church. We get bogged down with religion. We get bogged down with our health. All these things. Yeah. It's not that they're bad, because I would say most people in this room know enough and have walked with the Lord enough not to be in any gross sin. I mean, if you are, you should be ashamed of yourself, and you should be repenting, because you've been walking with God for a long time. But it's the, it's the tension between remembering, I don't belong here, so the stuff that's around me is actually an illusion because it's not going to last for eternity. My house, you know, making it look nice, you're talking about interior shops, you know. How much time am I spending on that? How much time am I spending on... on yeah, I, I don't even want to name them, because it's just... Think about how you think, what you think about, and how long you spend it, and that's what Jesus is talking about. So for you, it may not be money. It may be something else. So in all the parables and all of the stories, you need to be putting in your distraction. Mm. But it's out of my calendar. I can't remember where it is in the Bible, but Jesus said, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what the Lord's doing in you, Julia, isn't it? That's what, I mean, that's a recurring thing that he's telling you. I don't know if you realize that, but you often say something like that. So that's a recurring thing that he's bringing you back to all the time, that it's dangerous to spend time too long away because it's not good for you. And, um, and so he's always bringing you back. And I think the thing is that there's conflict. It's conflict between this world and and the world, the eternity that's coming. And, and, and it's, this is, as I said, this is the illusion. That's the reality. This is the mirage. That's, that's the re- reality. Yeah, go ahead. But he's placed us in this world for a very Oh, long definitely. Long. But... To be coming alongside people and to glorify him and help other people to understand about it. Exactly. So, but think about that, Kate, because that's definitely true. If we were, if it, if it was all about just believing, then we were z- beamed up Scotty to be with the Lord, because he could save ev- everybody if he wanted. He could just be doing it by an- angels and all sorts, dreams, which he does do. But he's left you here for a reason. So how important it is for you to be looking and for me to be looking at my life and say, okay, Lord, where am I getting bogged down? You know, if that's my purpose, if I'm here for talking about you and bringing people and helping people to know you, okay, how am I, where's my focus? What am I spending time on? Mm-hmm. You know, um, because, yeah, that is our purpose. That's why. Well, I mean, I also understand what Julius is talking about because actually you're not very useful for God if you don't know his word. No. So there's a, yeah. there's a happy meeting there. Yeah. Paul talks about it, doesn't he? I think we, I said this last time. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. This was Paul's um, way of understanding how he would live. Um, and he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day by the word and by the spirit. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's the battle. There it is. It's there. Because we are looking with our human eyes at things we can see, we can hear, we can touch we can hold on to, and we are imagining in our humanness that that's real, but that's not real. That's the illusion. Second uh, Corinthians four sixteen to eighteen. But we also need to be in this world of people we were mixing with. Of course. You know, if I sort of uh, turn myself into a hermit, yes, I can yes, to no. But that's why Paul's not a hermit. That's why he's saying we don't lose heart. I mean, he's in Second Corinthians, he's writing about all the trouble he's having in this world and, and, and the way it's battering him. I mean, he says in chapter one, I think, he says, we despaired even of life. Um, yeah, verse eight, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. So... He's living in this world, and he's actually at the sharp end of this world because he's traveling around trying to um, promote the gospel and bring people to the Lord. So, yeah, but what he's saying is 
that if we don't have this mindset, we will get sucked into this life and all the difficulties of it. You know, I mean, I, we've been praying, haven't we, over the Christmas holidays for people we know. We've been praying, you know, and that's a burden. And if you, if you hold that burden for yourself, it will do you in. It will just do you in. That's what I think he's talking about. Is is that okay? All of the time, I'm understanding God is at work. God is at work. God is at work. This is His plan. This is His purpose. This is what He's doing. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And all of the time, I'm lifting the people up that I pray to the Lord, and I'm actually leaving them there because I can't help them. So it's it's that focus that. He's there. He's real. There is a throne of grace. He wants me to bring people and all my troubles to it. And he wants me to leave them there because I can't live and I can't help anyone else if I'm burdened beyond my strength. Now, that sounds very super spiritual and holier than thou, which of course I am. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, but that's on everything, isn't it? It's in everything. It's in how much time you think about your children. How much time you spend worrying about them and anxious about them and whether or not you give them to the Lord, you give them to the Lord, believing because that's an act of absolute trust that God really does love them more than you do, that he really can help them more than you can. And, and that's a fight I've fought my whole life. I want to wrap my kids up in cotton wool. I want everything to be wonderful for them. And if I can humanly do it, I'll do it. And so it's a fight for me to say, Lord, I can't, I can't fix this. And actually, I don't want to because my fix will be temporary and I want your eternal fix. I want it to be done properly. You know, in, in, in a million ways and in a million things, it happens over our love. And I think that's what Jesus is showing us, teaching us, showing us. He's walking as a human being and showing us this is how you live as a human being. This is how you would have lived if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. This is how it would have been. It would have been you hearing your father's voice and you longing to do what he said. Yeah, amen, Jackie, <laughs> amen. Um, so, um, Luke 12 then. We finished in Luke 12 last time. Um, uh, so we're just going to pick it up from verse 49 because... Uh, Luke didn't write in chapters. He just wrote a whole thing. So, uh, so from, could somebody read from verse 49 to 13, verse 9, please? I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Uh, how I wish it were already kindled. But I have baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members of one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, 
when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyse the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyse this present time? And why do you not even, on your own initiative, judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there, make an effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid that ver the very last cent. Now on the same occasion, there was some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will be likewise, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Taos in Siloam fell and killed then were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding it. <coughs> Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertiliser. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Thank you. Okay. Uh, what Jesus is, has been doing and is continuing to do is to tell these parables and do this teaching so that people choose. They choose. Are they going to believe in him or are they not? I and mean, we know the end of the story, so we know that by far the majority did not believe. And so, um, But all the time he's presenting this choice to them. And... Um, uh, and, and soon the door's going to shut. That's the thing to remember. His, this, this section of Luke's Gospel takes place over a time of six months. So he, he, all this instruction, all this teaching, can you imagine the intensity of it? That he's trying to get them to a place where they actually choose to believe. And everything he says is, is geared to that. So he, he said to those people, you judge the signs of the times. You can see the weather. Why can't you see the signs of the times? You, you know if it's a red sky at night, shepherd's delight, and, and whatever the, the saying is, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. You can see that. So why are you not looking at what's happening around you? I mean, imagine the miracles that have been going on, the signs, the wonders that have been going on. Him, vast crowds following him. So he keeps presenting this choice to them. I am the Son of God. I am God in the flesh. I am 
the Messiah that you have been waiting for. Make your choice, make your choice, make your choice. And um, what he's saying is that um, there's a sentence coming, there's a judgment coming, and you need to settle before you get to court. You need to make your, make your arrangement, make your choice before the last minute comes upon you and you have no more time. What, hap- what will happen in AD 70? When is this actually happening, roughly? What year? Yeah, AD 30, 34, something like that. So what's going to happen in AD 70? Temple. Temple and Jerusalem are going to be destroyed. So actually it's a very short time away. It's 30, 35 years away. And the whole of Jerusalem will be ransacked. The Jews will be forced to flee. The temple will be no more. And from that day on, they have never been able to continue their religion. They may think they can, but they can't. Because they cannot make any sacrifices. And the sacrifices are a part of the Mosaic law and and their religion. So their religion was completely well, not completely, but their, the practice of their religion was destroyed in AD 70. I've been thinking about that I've been reading about Caleb. And because a lot of Jews don't believe that Jesus mm. has come, mm. how do they deal with their sin then if they can't sacrifice? Yeah, do do? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess they go through other rituals, but um, there is no forgiveness for sin without the shedding of blood. That's what God says in Leviticus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So if you're not coming through the blood of Christ, there is no way for forgiveness. And so it's an empty religion, actually. In fact, every religion is empty because of that. That if you don't come through the blood of Jesus, it's, there's no forgiveness. Um, so AD 70, as I say, they're gonna, it, the temple's going to be destroyed and and also now for us, 2,000 and odd years later, we're living in a time where we can see, I mean, what was in the newspaper today about Iran and, uh, and uh, Iraq and then about Turkey? And um, you, you can read Ezekiel and put it alongside the newspaper and you will know what's happening. We are not far from the end. And even if I'm wrong, even if, even if it's going to go another cycle and then come again, which I can't imagine, but let's say it does, we're still not far from the end. We are closer now than we've ever been. And the end will be the judgment. Everyone you know who doesn't know Jesus will stand before the judgment seat of God. And whether it's now or not, it's better be Absolutely. Settle out of court. That's what Jesus is saying to them. That's what I mean. So it's like all of the time he's giving people choice. So what are we supposed to be doing? All of the time we're supposed to be giving people choice. This is this. Is this. Now, how did Jesus say that? Did he walk up to everybody and say, do you know what? You're going to be judged in about 40 years. I mean, you better get right with me right now. No. What did he do? How did he do it? He did. He used their own surroundings and circumstances to teach them about what's happening and who he is and what's coming. And I think that's what we have to do a lot of. We have to use the situations that people are in to teach them about who Jesus is and how he can help. No, they don't. (laughs) Exactly. They don't. (laughs) I can't believe that, Kate. (laughs) Be quiet, Juliet. That can't be true. 
No, yeah, but you're right. It's right. Give an illustration. Mm. Yeah, anything. It's it because you know what Jesus is trying to do is to bring people to the place where they say, "Oh my goodness, I'm in trouble." And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people to the place where we're, they're going to say, oh, I can't do this. I need Jesus. What happens then if it's... Because a lot of people I know, their lives seem really hunky-dory. Mm. So what do you do about that? Well, you pray for them a lot because nobody's life is hunky-dory all the time. Mm. Life isn't hunky-dory. And the thing is, you have to remember that, it, humanly speaking... You only know what people show you. You don't know about them. You don't know their heart. You don't know what's going on in their family. You don't know, yeah. So we can look and see, oh, that, you know, they look so great and that's always happening and, you know, um, but that's... I think showing your own vulnerability first. Definitely, yeah. Relate to you in a realistic Yeah, definitely. And if you do pray for people, he often, he shows you, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he does, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, because that's why, Jane, isn't it? Because he wants them saved more than we want them saved, so he's going to show us, you know. Um, so they come to him on the same occasion. That's why we read from verse 49. It says, on the same occasion they came, and they said about these people that Pilate had obviously killed and, um, uh, and mixed with some sacrifices to the, to the gods that, they, uh, that Pilate and the Romans worshipped. What... By his answer, what were they actually saying? I mean, Jesus says, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? So what, what do you think they were actually assuming when they said about the... Yeah, they are thinking that those Galileans did something really bad and that's why they died that sort of a death. What's Jesus tell them in his answer? It's a, the same as you. That actually, there's no difference. Don't think that they were worse. They did something worse than you, because actually, that's not true. But everyone will suffer a similar fate if they don't repent. So he took the horrific story that they were telling him to tell them that actually, that's the fate of everyone who, um, yeah, that doesn't come to me and it's all the time it's like no one is sinless we all have sin and we all need forgiveness and everybody whoever they are whatever religion they follow all of them will suffer from guilt and shame and there is only one way to deal with those things and that is through Jesus Um, and it's nice to have an illustration like that because you think to yourself yeah, he will still have me. Yeah. He's yeah. died for me. Yeah. And he knows about um, yeah. the fact that I, I'm a bit scrappy most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he, that's why he died for Exactly. Me. That's why he died for you. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So he's, um, he's going to go on and talk about um, a parable, uh, a farmer and a fig tree. And, um, and it's a pretty obvious parable. The fig tree was supposed to bear fruit and hadn't borne fruit. And so um, if it wasn't bearing fruit, what was the point in its existence? And so, um, uh, and basically it bears out the same thing that he's been telling them. Judgment comes on those who do not bear fruit. And the bearing of fruit 
is going along with repentance. Remember Luke in Luke chapter 1, I think it was, or 3, Luke's baptizing, um, John the Baptist is baptizing, and he tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance brings about fruit. It's not something you do, it's something that happens. And so if the fig tree isn't bearing figs, it's not a fig tree. Do you see what I mean? It's that idea that an apple tree is only an apple tree if there's apples on it. And so it's, the apple tree doesn't make the apples, or sort of, you know, it's the sap that goes up through the branches that makes the apples. And that's the same thing with the figs. And so it's pretty obvious. Um, he says the same thing. Matthew records it a couple of times. What's he actually saying then to us and to them? Well, he's going to let it go carry on growing for about 40 years after his death and resurrection. So he's giving them that extra year, the fig tree, but if not, cut it down. That's, what's, that's what happens. It's going to be cut down. Who's he aiming this at? The Pharisees, primarily the Pharisees, <coughs> but also all the Jews that are following him. The Jews knew themselves to be a chosen race. They expected to go into the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of God. They expected that simply because they were Jews. And he's trying to tell them, you might have the name Jew, but unless you're producing the fruit that Jews produce, you're not going there. Paul will say the same thing in Romans. Remember in Romans chapter 2, he says, true circumcision is of the heart. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but inwardly, because true circumcision is of the heart and um, not of the flesh. These Jews all put their confidence in um, a covenant that they thought they were covered by, but actually did not understand that that covenant involved their heart. That's why John says right at the beginning, Jesus knew the hearts of men. Because they weren't... Uh, doing what they were supposed to do. So that's Jesus' uh, judgment, final warning, sorry, of the judgment coming to that generation and also to us, to us, our generation, because God expects fruit. That's the thing. What did you say about 40 years? I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Yeah. This actual parable... Year, yeah, no, but I think that's just a picture. It, he, he says, get, fertilize it for a year, and then if it doesn't bear any fruit after a year, cut it down. Yeah. I was just saying that 40 years later, that fig tree that symbolized Israel would be cut down because they'd be chucked out of Israel, of the land. Um, I mean, think about it. I've, I've written here, you know, each one of us is to be bearing fruit. It's not that you run around trying to figure out how to grow an apple or a fig or an olive or whatever. It's that you are asking the Lord to work through you to produce the fruit. Um, and I was thinking about it when I, you know, I've got some relatives who live in Australia and I've got um, a friend's daughters who are like my nieces there in Australia. And... Uh, Fortunately, not right by the fires, but everyone's affected in Australia about the fires. And you see the pictures on there, and you just think, it's hideous, isn't it? And so I was thinking about that, you know, and think about, about the people who are going to die in those fires. They thought they had years. 
but they didn't. It's now. And, and I was thinking about that and thinking about, you know, how to turn that thought into what, okay, Lord, what am I to be doing? And one thing I know is that I am not to be just taking up space. You know, you talked about why we're here, Kate. You know, the fact that we've been left here. We do have to live here. We have to live here with people who are going to, f- who are going to die. Like that, in a moment. And we have to be aware of that. Um, and actually, it's not so much that you don't want to be aware of it. It's that it's so easy to be distracted by this life. That we live our own life and... We haven't got fires raging outside the door. So the, the, in, the imminency of it all. So, Father, thank so you. Bad. Thank you that we have a place to meet. Thank you that we are going to be expanding next door. Thank you that um, we get the opportunity to, um, to change a few things and uh, to um, just open this place up more, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you that uh, you are going to lead and direct and guide our footsteps and... And thank you for the way that you've done this, Lord. It's an amazing thing to me. And um, so I thank you for it. I thank you for what we're learning as we come back now into Luke's Gospel. And I ask, Lord, that you would keep us focused on on your voice, actually, on what you have to say. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so could somebody read verse 10 to verse 21, please, of chapter 13? On the Sabbath... Jesus was teaching one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who was crippled by spirit for missing years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he pulled her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus is healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. Mm -hmm. But the people were delighted in all the wonderful things that he was doing. Twenty-one, thank you. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched on its branches. Again he said, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked through the dough. Thank you. Okay, this is um, the last time in Luke's Gospel that Jesus teaches in a synagogue. So um, it's quite notable what happens here. And um, the, he uses the word hypocrites, which he's used before in, um, in just a little while ago. In verse 56 of chapter 12, he said, You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth. Why do you not analyze this present time? And here he's calling his opponents hypocrites. Um, uh, where I've lost where it is, actually. Where is it? He says hypocrites. Um, 15. 15, thank you. Yeah, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the... St- uh, on 
uh, on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey. So what's his point? Because the word hypocrite is kind of, um, we know what it means, but it, he uses it in a slightly different way. What's his point here? Well, this woman is tied up by her. Yeah, business. yeah. And so they're even following untying a donkey, which is really not as Yeah, yeah. So think about the word hypocrite. Why is he, he used it just a little while ago when he said, you know how to analyse the appearance of the sky, yet you're, you're not analysing this present time. And here he says, you hypocrites, um, don't, you, don't you do what you want on the Sabbath? Yeah, go ahead. Is it because they're, they're play-acting at it, they're, they're messing about, they know the truth, yeah. and they're pretending to do it, yeah. and doing all sorts of things, but they aren't actually in their hearts, they aren't actually Yeah, doing. I think that's true, so connect that to um, something else. I mean, connect it to, what's the point in Jesus, this segment of, um, well, from actually from chapter 4 on, Luke's recorded Jesus' identification by his miracles and his signs, and now his teaching, his instruction, so he's teaching them as God would teach them, so he's all the way through showing them who he is. So he's, he's saying to them, you're hypocrites. You can see this. You can see the signs of the times and, you, you know, you, the sky and you know what to do. You would untie your ox on the Sabbath. So underneath all of it, what, what's his point? His point is you don't really want to know. You don't really want to see who I am. Because if you did, it would be as plain as the nose on your face. That is so important. And that's why he's calling them hypocrites. Yeah. Because they are pretending they want to know. Yes. The crowds are following him. Yes. They, um, John will record him saying, You're only f they're only following me because of what I can give them when he'd fed the 5,000. Yes. So the crowds are following. They're acclaiming him. They're going to you know, do the hosannas into Jerusalem in a very short space of time. But they don't really want to know who he is or, or, yeah, or, or what he's teaching. And that's true not just of the, the um, Pharisees and this leader of the synagogue, it's true of most of the crowds that are following him. They don't really want to know. It's exactly true of us. That's the whole point. Because we don't really want to. We make all the noises and we want to change, want to be different. Yes. 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 I think that's that's a second step. I think the first step is when you people say to you, "I can't believe. I wish I had a faith like yours. Yeah. I can't believe what you believe." The reality is, you won't believe yes. what I believe yes. because you don't want to. Mm -hmm. For some reason, you yeah. don't want to. Now, sometimes they don't even know they don't want to, but they don't want to. And so that's the key. The hypocrites, you know, they are hypocritical, and it means put on a show, and it means keep things covered up. It means all of those things, but the bottom line here is you don't want to know yeah. the truth. You are refusing it, and that's why he's so angry with them because he's going to use this woman 18 years she is has been coming to the synagogue now imagine that 18 years this woman who is bent double has been coming to the synagogue what's the point of that forget the fact that she's bent double at the moment but just think about the commitment and the devotion of that woman that she has been coming to the synagogue for 18 years she must have been praying for 18 years that the Lord would heal her, yeah. that God would heal her, yet still she came with no healing. I don't yeah. want to be personal, but mm. if we look at uh, the effort it is for 
Yeah, definitely. To get here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need to say any more, but it's an effort. Yeah, it it is. It is. And so, you know, that's the contrast here. It's this huge number of people who don't want to know God, who don't want to know Messiah, who don't want to know truth. And this one woman, bent double, he calls her a daughter of Abraham, which is a very, very unusual statement. It's, it, there's no other place in scripture that it's used. She is a daughter of Abraham, and he specifically calls her that to show this is what a true Jew looks like. This is what someone who loves God looks like. No matter their circumstance, no matter, they keep on coming. They just keep on coming. Now, I'm not trying to give her motives that we don't know what she has. I'm not trying to say that, but it's just interesting to me that it follows straight on the back of him Uh, calling the crowds hypocrites, all the way through calling people hypocrites. And so, um, and what he's going to do for this woman is exactly what he's offered all the crowds. See, he's going to touch her and she's going to straighten up. Yes, but think about that. He touched you and you straightened up. He touched me and I straightened up. That's what he's trying to show them. This is one touch. Come, to give, give me your heart and this just one touch and you will be walking straight. It is an amazing thing. And it's in, in, interesting, this is the last time he ever goes into a synagogue. Um, or at least the last time we hear that he's been teaching in there. And, um, and it's also interesting because he talks about Satan in the same passage. He talks about... Uh, this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day. So following the idea of her devotion and her commitment to be coming to the synagogue, think about what that means. He's ascribing to Satan the sickness that she has, the bent double, whatever it is. Now, does he mean that, that Satan deliberately attacked her and kept her in this position or does he mean that satan is the cause of much illness and disease because actually ultimately the reason this world is ridden with disease is because of satan and his temptation well because of man but you know what i mean he's he so i don't think he explains whether or not satan deliberately did this sorry juliet hold on whether he deliberately did that but what he is saying is that whatever satan does jesus can immediately heal from. And that even though Satan kept her bound, that's what he says, she, she was released. But ask yourself the question, so what does that mean in terms of believers? Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it just means to me, something that I'm really thinking about right now, is that uh, there comes a moment, there comes a time, when it is, uh, I got it from the beginning of Luke, where uh, Mary had been told she was going to have a baby. And then there comes the time when that word is fulfilled. And that dear lady kept coming, kept coming, kept coming, and there came a moment. And I think that's what it means to me. That uh, you have to hang on like that because God is faithful to his word. And there will come a time. And he will answer that prayer. And it will be done. And, yeah, and you'll see it. But uh, I was just saying to Debbie, so often you want to throw the towel in before mm-hmm. because 
towards the very end, the nearer it gets to that time, mm. the more difficult it is, mm. and the more you want to fiddle mm. and meddle and, mm. and change it, and oh well, mm. I won't go there, I'll do this, mm. and you know, the whole word of God is Christ, don't do that, yeah. there will come a moment. Yeah. So that's that's it. No, yeah, thank you, Rosie. That's it. I think, um, yeah, uh, there's probably everyone's got their own thing with that. But, um, yeah, for me, it was really clear that Christ Jesus heals from which, wherever your sickness comes from, and however he heals, he heals. Um, and it will be in, in his own way. Yeah, in his own there's time. There's going on that we no, there's all sorts. Yeah, there's all sorts of things. Healing is a difficult one. Um, yeah. So um, Satan puts people into bondage, but Christ sets free. Um, and this is on the Sabbath. Um, and when Christ sets us free, we move into the rest of God, into the Sabbath rest of God, which is an amazing thing, and which actually is going to come up in the conference at the end of the month. Um, Jesus, our great high priest. Um, but he's angry. He's angry with them because he's calling them hypocrites, and he's calling them hypocrites because they didn't want to know um, about him or about um, uh, what he was offering to them. And... Um, it says, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So he then goes on to say, what is the kingdom of God like? And he uses two examples, a mustard seed and leaven that the woman puts into, um, into the flour. Now, um, I think that the disciples and those people who were following him didn't quite understand that they were now in great danger. I think they're in danger in two different ways. They're obviously in danger physically but um, because the Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus by now. And, um, but also they're in danger in two other ways. Um, you see what it says? He says that his opponents are humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So he then goes on to say, what is the kingdom of God like and what shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed. So what does he mean by these two examples? Because I've heard this taught in lots of different ways and I can't quite get my head around most of the ways that I've heard it taught because context is everything, isn't it? He's just been, he's just healed this woman on the Sabbath and people have opposed him. The crowds are following him, but he's called the crowds hypocrites. So they might be glorying over what, what's going on, but he's already called them hypocrites. So think about that. Think about his, his, his actual attack or his, his accusation to the people, even those who are glorying in or uh, rejoicing in all this that he's been doing. And then think about what is he trying to say about the kingdom of God? Um, what are the Pharisees plotting to do? Kill him. Okay, so what's the danger for the disciples? That they're going to be killed. What's the other danger now? He, he's just said his opponents were humiliated, 
So their intensity to want to kill him and his disciples is going to be ramped up. And the crowd is rejoicing. What's the danger of the crowd rejoicing? Yeah. What's the danger to the disciples? Yeah, no, that's the danger... What's the trap? What's the trap? You know, I mean, these disciples are going to go on to do great things, and Jesus is showing them there's a trap here. I think it's what he's going to talk about, about the kingdom of God. There is a trap here, and the trap is the trap of popularity. The crowd are whipped up into a frenzy. They are rejoicing. They're amazed. They're following Jesus in their hundreds and thousands. As I said earlier, they're going to hosanna him into, the, into Jerusalem. They're going to lay palm branches before him. And that same crowd is going to, just a few days later, cry for him to be crucified. Yeah. What's the trap? The trap is popularity. People. And that goes along with the fear of man. The fear of what man can do to you and the wanting to please man, so which is in, in its own way a type of fear. So look at verse 17. All his opponents being humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things being done by him. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like and what shall I compare it to? So you, perhaps it will become a little bit clearer as we go on. What's... Um, what do you understand from the mustard seed? What is typically the understanding about the mustard seed? Right. Right. And it shows into a huge tree. Well, a mustard seed doesn't grow into a huge tree. It go, grows into a shrub. It goes into a kind of bigger shrub, but not a massive tree. Okay, secondly, what's the second picture before we come back to the first one? What's the second picture? Leaven putting leaven into the flour. What is leaven a symbol of in scripture? Sin. It is a uh, symbol of sin. Now, just in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I don't think that in, in, in a very short time afterwards, he's going to be using that leaven symbol as a good thing. I think he's using it as the same thing he's used it as before, sin. What happens when you put leaven or what happens when you put sin into the, um, the body? It spreads and it grows. What happens when seeds grow into big trees? What does he say will happen? No, what does he say? The birds of the air come and sit in his branches. And I think what he's saying is, do not confuse the birds with fruit. It's not fruit. The birds who sit on the branches of this tree and is not the fruit of that tree. The leaven is not a good thing. It's not a thing to make it spread. It's not the way that it's going to spread. It's the sin. And I think they're in danger of it because they're drawn into this crowds of people following Jesus and he's always calling them hypocrites you hypocrites you're only following me for what I've just done you're only following me because you're seeing miracles and that's for us isn't it now I mean we know what happened with them they all crucified him they they sent him they cried for him to be crucified rather than Barabbas there's no doubt that he looked into their hearts and knew who they really were 
And so I can't imagine that he's talking now about leaven being a good thing, that it's going to grow. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that that's what he's saying. Beware of the kingdom. Beware of being taken in by this uh, popularity, this size, this growth that looks like it's happening in the kingdom of God because actually most of it is not. I think that's what he's saying. But the birds, they're they're sitting on the branches of this tree, but they don't... That's exactly what I mean. It looks, at the moment, those disciples think, wow, he's the Messiah. Look at the crowds are all following him. It's going to be amazing. When are you going to take back the country for, you know, the nation for for God? When's it going to happen? And they must have been so excited. Can you imagine their excitement? And that's what we're like. We go into a big church and we hear the singing and the music and everybody's raising their hands. It's like, wow, this is incredible. But most of those people go out on Sunday night and they live lives completely opposed to God through the week. Not everybody. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody. I think that what he's saying is that leaven infects the, the kingdom of God. It infects the kingdom of God. Remember, he's talking about a kingdom of God now that they were expecting to come on earth. When Messiah came, they expected that it would be there on earth at that time. So he, they've as yet got no understanding of the kingdom of God as we have it. They don't understand that. They're expecting Messiah to come and take back the land for Israel and, and get rid of the Romans. Yeah. They don't have the understanding we have. And what he's saying to them is, I think what he's saying is, uh, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God at that time? The kingdom of God is Israel. What shall I compare to the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, like this leaven that the woman puts into three pecks of it into the flour until it's all spread all over. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you've, there's tons of commentaries you can read, and they'll all, a lot of them will say the opposite. But I just can't get my head around the opposite. Yes, yes. And he's just called them all hypocrites. He's called them hypocrites all the way through. They don't want, actually, ultimately, they don't want him. And um, uh, so I can't think, I mean, yeah, I just, I can't think that um, that he's talking about a, a wonderful growth because actually when you look at the world's population and the, and the growth of the church, we haven't done that well, really. So if he's talking about massive growth and all the birds of the air going, coming in the kingdom, I mean, that's just not happening. Did, did that, in, in the beginning of Acts, when we see about the spread of the gospel... Yeah, you're still talking in small thousands rather than millions. I think, I mean, I, I, I read the numbers for the number of Jewish believers that there, are, there were in 2015, and I think it was something like 30,000. So, I mean, you're talking about a nation of, what, I don't know, five million? Six, Six million? That's not a big per- percentage. So, uh, you know, all I'm saying is, he's going to, he started this with telling them they didn't understand the signs of the times. He's called them hypocrites. And at the end of this chapter, he's going to say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood but you would not have it. 
therefore your house is left to you desolate. So, yeah, go ahead, Alan. Have we got to learn a new approach to the Lord? <laughs> if I ask him, would I have done? Well, I believe he spoke to me during the night. And I said, well, I'm healing. Well, haven't I had the healing? Well, all I know is, Alan, that your conviction doesn't make a difference to God's healing. So, um, yeah, that's what I know for sure. That it's not your faith that heals you, it's his power that heals you and and that and that he knows your heart so whatever your words have been it doesn't matter your heart is you have longed for healing physical healing from the moment you got parkinson's and he knows your heart mm. so i don't know the answer ellen i wish i knew the answer i don't know the answer but i know that it's not the f your fault it's not because you didn't ask right or you didn't use the right words or it's nothing to do with that. Can I just say that that lady, I just was looking at it, I don't hear someone, um, uh, Luke 13, he called her to him. She yeah. had been 18 years like yeah. that. And she yeah. didn't go to him, he called her to him. Yeah. So there is that moment when he calls you to him and yeah. speaks the word. And you have to wait and, and just trust God for that moment because mm. it will come. Mm. The thing is, Alan, I can't, how can I possibly say to you about your healing? I, I, I can't. It's not my place and I would never do it. How, how patronising of anyone mm. to talk to you about why God hasn't healed you or why he has. But one thing I know for sure is that your faith is strong. Strong. What did Kate just say about you coming here? <laughs> Isn't it difficult? Your faith is really strong, and that is what people see. They don't actually see your body. You do every day, but they don't. They hear your voice. They hear your heart, actually. You're giving cards out all over the place. You're telling them about a God who loves and saves and heals, and, and you're doing that whilst he hasn't physically healed you. That is an amazing declaration of faith. You, and, and you yourself are a testament. Yeah. And I know you don't want to be that. <laughs> You'd rather get up and walk out, you know. And I would rather, you'd, well, I don't know. I, I want what God wants. I want what God wants for you. And I know that you've impacted me in a way you wouldn't have done otherwise. You'd have just been cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well, even worse jokes. I mean, they're dreadful enough as it is. Yeah, well, they were getting a little bit colourful, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> Weren't they? But I've been in some clinic, and the other guy was Yeah, exactly. Yes. It is a miracle, actually. Yeah. It is a miracle that you're still here, tormenting us. <laughs> yeah, keeping Linda busy. 
So um, that's what I think about that. I think that um, there's no there's no proof that in our in our world that the, the kingdom of God has permeated the world. It hasn't actually, and uh, it, the way he describes the uh, leaven and. I think the mustard seed doesn't produce a, a big tree. I think it, the big tree is symbolic of Christendom as we know it, and the birds are the things that sometimes get confused for fruit, and actually they're not fruit. And I think that based on what he's going to say next, and he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate in your, and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Um, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God and behold some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. He does not say, I mean, uh, he doesn't go on to say... Um, you know, many are going to come in, or in fact, he says, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many will try to come, but they won't be able to. Um, and few, he says, um, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Um, the scribes are discussing how many people are going to be saved. And just as uh, Jesus did with Nicodemus in John's Gospel, he doesn't answer their question specifically. He points straight to them and says, make sure you get saved. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Um, because it's personal. And that's what he, he, he's trying to pull all of them into, the understanding that they have to make a choice. They've got to make a choice. Get that settled first, and then you can help other people. Um, uh, Jesus pictures the kingdom of God as a great feast, and um, with patriarchs and prophets there and honoured guests. But who's he saying? To, I mean, he's talking to the Jews, and what he's saying to them is, you've been invited and invited and invited, and you haven't responded. And there's going to be a moment when the door is shut, and you won't be able to get in. And, and actually, that's, you know, that, that's symbolic of their whole history, actually. In, in some ways, it, well, in Romans, we know God hardened their hearts to let the Gentiles in. Yeah. So it's this, con this constant refusal to, to receive. Um, At this particular moment, is he talking about the, to the, about the Pharisees? I think he's talking to every Jew who won't believe him. Yeah who won't believe in him. Um, obviously, the Pharisees are the leaders, so they're the most visible, and they should have known much better than the average person, but still, it's to all of them. But it does say in Revelation, doesn't it, after the they'll have great tribulation, yes. and then they'll be brought Yeah, well, the remnant will, yeah. mm. at that time. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of Jews who will die between now and then who will not be there in the kingdom of God. Uh, why did they wait so long then? Why are they waiting so long? 
I think that, uh, well, just talk about these at the moment. Why are they not coming in? Why are they not receiving Jesus? He's gone among them. He's done miracles and signs. He's taught them as no one has ever taught them before. He's, he's shown them all sorts of things. Why are they not believing him? They're set in their own ways, which is another way of saying, I don't want you. I don't want you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't want to give up what I have or what I perceive to have. Exactly. Yeah, it's pride. No, doubt is not the opposite of faith. I think we all have doubt about different things. So does that mean that they're saved? It's like doubting Thomas. It's not at all like doubting Thomas because the Holy Spirit hadn't been given then. So um, doubting Thomas was a one-off um, example. Um, but doubt, people always say, you know, you, you shouldn't doubt. Doubt is the opposite of faith. I'm not sure that it is. I think doubt is questions that you come to the Lord with and you say, I'm just not sure about that. And I think his answer sometimes is, well, here's the answer. And other times it is, you have to hold that captive, Anne. You've got to hold that thought captive because that's going to do you no good. Yeah. And you have to keep it out. Yeah. And, and the faith comes by choosing not to have the answer. That's Alan's thing, isn't it? His faith is made stronger because he's not healed. That's the thing. As soon as you're healed, it's all whoop-de-doo and everything's fine. But your faith is strengthened when you're not healed. I know you want to say something funny, but you can't because there's no time. So, so... Doubt is being in two minds. Yeah, well, I can't answer that, Rosemary. No. I have doubts about things. I mean, whenever I think about the rapture, I think, Lord, that sounds like E.T. phone home. You know, yeah. it's like a science fiction movie. What, I'm going to be beamed up Scotty, in a, you know, and suddenly I'm not there. I, I can't get that in my head. Yeah. I can't get the Trinity in my head. And because I can't get it in my head, it's like, is that really true, Lord? Is that really true? Yeah. But, it, but the thing is, my mind is so tiny. Of course I'm going to have, I'm human. I think, didn't Jesus have doubts? He did because he had to experience everything we experience. So I think the doubt is not the sin. No, I know it's the sin. No. It is, that's what I've read. Well, Well, that comes from James. It comes from James, actually. Let, if anyone lacks anything, let him ask of God. Let him not doubt, because then you're like a, a thing being tossed yes. around on the water. That's where that comes from. But I've heard that doubt is sin, and I don't believe it is. No, I don't believe that. And I think that's why I think the doubt that moves you around then, as you're saying, you're in two minds, is the doubt you need to hold captive, the thought that you need to hold captive. And it keeps you awake as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And holding captive is, you know, a lifelong work for some. Um, okay, so why did they wait so long, all these, these Jews who saw Jesus, who were walking around with him? Why were they waiting so long? First, because they had to walk a narrow way. They had to come through a narrow gate, and they didn't want to. They wanted the nice, broad, easy path. 
Second, because um, they had a false sense of security. They thought they were Jews and they were in, so it didn't really matter. Third, pride. Who said pride? Somebody over here said pride. They wouldn't humble themselves. And uh, fourth, I think, because they depended on their own religion. They depended on what they were doing and the religion that they were in. And the last reason, as I've said, as we've said already, you would not. They did not want God. They didn't want Jesus, actually. Ultimately, they didn't want him, which is a terrible indictment, isn't it? You know, I remember years ago when my husband said, you know, would, uh, prayed for God to give him a sign, and I prayed with him too. That was about 12 years ago before we came back to England. It might be 14 years now. If God exists, give him a sign. And I prayed that for him, with him. I prayed with Alan. We were on, in Canada, and I prayed for him. Lord, would you please give him a sign? And um, the next morning, or overnight, I don't know when it was, but early in the morning, I know God said, do not ask for a sign. No sign will be given you except for the sign of Jonah. The sign of the cross and the resurrection is sign enough. It's enough. And, and my husband didn't want a sign. He wanted, you know, a way to not have to repent and come through the narrow door. He didn't want to have to say, I was wrong all these years. You know, and I, you know, I love him and he's a good man, so I'm not saying anything horrible about him, but what I am saying is that ultimately, it's a narrow door, a narrow way, and you have to come God's way. And he's given you the sign. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. No. Yeah. Yeah. And but actually, it's sad in about everybody, isn't it? The whole world is. I was going to say, how does that apply to us, really? Yeah. Yeah. We know and we're praying for. Yeah. Yeah. And I honestly, I think I just said to Alan, we had a conversation in the break, but um, I think that the more you harden your heart, the harder it becomes to hear the gospel and to hear the truth. And that's the worry. That, um, you know, that's what I tell my husband, you know, you live with me, so you are exposed to the truth of God all the time. The reckoning for you will be much harder. Even though you're a good person, even though all of those things, because you have been, you have been put in the presence of God, you know, for the last 25 years. I think you said that a few weeks ago. Probably. Yeah, probably. Mm. Poor chap, he gets that all the time. <laughs> mm. This is not only what I've said, it's what yeah. we can see is happening. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So all those reasons why they waited, you have to come through a narrow door, you've got a full sense of security. A lot of people think they're good people, they don't do this, they don't do that, so they're good, you know, and why would God not take them? I have a sister like that. Why would God not take me? I'm a good person. Pride, you know, um, they won't humble themselves. Um. Can I ask a controversial question? <laughs> yes. <laughs> if it's too long to answer, please don't ask. Uh, you know, stop, you know. mm. um, do you think the continuing persecution of the Jewish nation is to do with the fact that they rejected Jesus? Uh, no, I think anti-Semitism is of Satan mm. completely and utterly, and I think he wants to destroy Israel mm. because through Israel the Messiah will come. The Messiah will come and stand on Jerusalem in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives if he can if they can totally wipe out 
Israel and Jerusalem. There's no place for Jesus to, to stand. If there's no Jewish nation, Christ won't come back. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I heard an interesting thing actually by a Jewish believer. Um, he he does puts a lot out on YouTube. He's got a ministry called Behold Israel, and he's uh, he used to be in the IDF, the Israel Defence Force, and so he's got a lot of inside information about what goes on in Israel and what's going on around the world. Um, but he. Um, was it him now? Forgetting. Anyway, I think it was him. He gave this talk, and he said that Jews have got a... Um, it's like every Jew's got a bullseye painted on them. And they don't want the bullseye. They'd rather not have it. But it's there. And it's, 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 it's like God's put it there. And whilst they would rather not have it, once you come to the Lord Jesus, you understand why. You've got this bullseye. Why does, why does Satan hate the Jews? Because God chose them to manifest himself through them and because Messiah came through them. And so, no, I don't think, whatever your question was, I don't think that's why. Satan is attacking the Jews. Yeah. Um, all through the Old Testament, when you see God was very, very specific about the punishment that Jews would get for not keeping the law, it, it's very specific, sometimes so much so you can hardly get your head around it. And then, um, and then afterwards, after they've been punished, very often, in, like in Ezekiel, in um, Jeremiah, when the prophets are speaking about the other nations, what God's uh, accusation is, I asked you to do something. I used you to do something to chastise and discipline my people, but you went too far. You enjoyed it so much and carried on. So there's been discipline of God's people, definitely, by God, and he's used other nations, but, um, but anti-Semitism is of Satan. And people who, who, who hate Israel, that's of Satan. And, I, you know... Inside the church, that's uh, an amazing, well, a horrendous thing that Satan's been able to do, turn the church against Israel. Um, so, uh, we've reached the end, actually. You can't believe it, can you? But we have. I'm even at the end of my note. Oh, am I? No, I've got one more page. Hold on. Okay. Okay. So, thank you. Yes, Linda. Good job you're here. Okay. So, um, He's going to say that uh, just in, we're in 28, in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and they will come. And so there's going to be um, people who refuse Jesus, that's who he's talking to, the Jews, and they're going to be so sorry they did, but they're going to reach a time when it is too late. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think I read in a commentary, one of the agonies of hell is the knowledge that you could have been somewhere else, mm-hmm. that you heard the truth and you, you didn't want it. Um, Okay, so strive to enter through the narrow gate. Um, think about that in terms of uh, we're told not to strive, cease striving and know that I am God. You don't strive to get into the kingdom of heaven. Christ brings you in. You just put your trust in him. But uh, he's talking to the Jews who are thinking it's easy and that they're in. And he's saying, you know, this is going to take a little bit of effort on your part. You're going to have to humble yourself, etc., etc. The thing for us is, you know, association with believers doesn't make you a Christian. Going to a church every week doesn't make you a Christian. Um, 
Unfortunately, we live in the West where people think that makes you a Christian. Being christened as a child, as a baby, doesn't make you a Christian. Yeah. Hmm? Yes, yes. No, exactly. I was confirmed and that didn't make me a Christian. (laughs) So just at that time, some Pharisees approached him, verse 31, saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and performs cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, the... Um, Jesus is in a place called Perea, and, uh, which is ruled by Herod, and the uh, Pharisees want to get him back to Judea where they can do something about him um, and take it in their own hands to get rid of him. So they're trying to frighten him away, but um, Jesus was having none of it. He's just turned that back on, on them and said, go and say to that fox. He knew his mission and he wasn't afraid. Um, and then he talks about prophets not dying. Um, it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Um, and that is a parallel. He, he said something very similar in chapter 11, verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. Um, Uh, yeah, sorry, Um, so from verse 47 down to the end of the chapter, he's talked about that, that the nation keeps on rejecting God's invitation and um, even killed the servants who brought them the invitation. Um, Yeah, 47 down to uh, you build the tombs of the prophets. Uh, 11, 11, 47, chapter 11, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, as you finish the chapter, then, what's Jesus' heart at the end of chapter thirteen? What's what's he feeling? What do you know he's feeling in his heart? He's sad. Yeah, he's really sad. What's he sad about? Yeah, he's sad at the condition of their heart. He's sad at their unbelief, at their willful unbelief, which is the the Old Testament calls disobedience. Um, Unbelief is disobedience. And they're willfully disobedient because they know the truth and they're rejecting it. Um, mm. This last line then, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, when do you think that will be? Um, when we have the new yes, when he comes the second time. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I've got the scriptures for that if you want them. Zechariah 12, verse 10. Verse, uh, Zechariah 14, verse 4. Um, uh, and Romans 11, verse 1. 
for those uh, believers who think that God has finished with Israel. Um, Alan, do you want to get up? Yeah. Yeah? Well, you can't do it, Rosie. You don't have a hand. I do. <laughs> Can you? Yeah. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Uh, Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Um, so, God has not rejected Israel. Israel have rejected him, but he has not rejected them. Um, okay, any questions? Sorry, that last bit was a bit disjointed. I thought I'd reached the end and I hadn't. Mm. No, it's his son. Yeah, it's his son. Or his cousin, I'm not sure. There was a bit of murder going on in there, and I don't know who, which one this is. Yeah. But it was interesting how the other hair bearers wanted him killed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think they all wanted him killed. Yeah, yeah, they all wanted him killed. Um, mm. Yeah, so any questions? Sorry, I, it was a little bit disjointed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will look upon him whom they've pierced and mourn over him. That's what you're talking about. Um, you know, it's a funny thing, really, and I'm a little bit fluid on it. Depends which day you get me. Um, I, what I believe is that in the tribulation, uh, Jesus has said to them regarding AD 70 and also for the future, uh, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, so in the middle of the tribulation, get out of Judea. And I think, and Revelation talks about God sending a flood to make sure Satan and his helpers can't get them. And, yeah, and so they get to, I think where they go is Petra, and they hide out there, and God protects them there for time, times and half a time. Daniel calls it three and a half years. And so I think they're there. And I think in that time, either they come to faith in that time, and there had to be an element of faith because they've actually got out of Jerusalem and Judea, or literally they see Christ come back and in that instant they see who he is. And that actually is my preferred option because that's the way Paul was saved. He was saved by seeing the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And he talks about himself being untimely born as a prophet. And I feel like in in his in the picture of his salvation, we have the picture of Israel's yeah. final salvation. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. There's so many other things in there, but yeah. Um, sorry, that was a long answer to your yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think, um, but only a third will get through. Um, yeah. Um, and and then uh, Paul will say in in Romans 11, and thus and therefore uh, all Israel will be saved. I don't believe that the church and the Jews are all Israel. I think 
all Israel there is all Israel who remain at that time will be saved. Um, and the ones who are saved now are the church. Are the church. Mm. So we call them Messianic Jews, but they actually are the church. Yeah. And yeah. they will go with us. Yeah, they go with us. Yeah. 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 It is sad. It is sad. Yeah. Okay, so Father, thank you that um that we have all this information and all this knowledge that you're offering it to us and I love the fact, Lord, that you've told us that um wisdom is the correct application of knowledge and so that's what we need, Lord. We need to understand how to correctly apply what you've told us to our individual lives, to each one of us individually and to us together, Lord, as a, as a group. How do we apply what we know? How do we understand that time is short? And how do we see the signs of the times? And how do we assess our life, Lord, and, and make sure that we understand that, um, that it's a narrow door and and that we are just so privileged to have been brought into your kingdom. Lord, I, I ask that you would help us to see all of that, to put it all together, to find our place in, in, in the scheme, Lord, in the purpose that you have, and, and that we would understand that uh, it's not a fearsome thing, it's a gentle, loving thing that you have for us, and that and that you, you do have this work that you created in advance for us to do, and it will be wonderful. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue our walk with you through this gospel and, and just help us to understand, really understand, and work into the very fabric of our being the truth of who you are, Lord, and who we are in you. And I just praise you, Father, and thank you, for I know that you will do it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.